I want to tell you about powdered wigs, an instantly recognisable piece of historical men's fashion that rose to prominence in, uh, in Western fashion during the 18th century. Powdered wigs at their apex were absolutely mandatory fashion accessories for wealthy men, uh, particularly throughout the back half of the 18th century. Women didn't often wear wigs back then, although that's not to say that they weren't in the business of artificial hair. The fashion for women was instead to use hair pieces, hair extensions, essentially. But we will uh, we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. Anyway, today you think of a white powdered wig uh, immediately associated with uh, the olden days, right? And uh, when you picture in your mind many famous historical figures from the, the 18th century, particularly the late 18th century, chances are you're picturing them in wigs uh, from kings like the British George III to composers like Mozart, episodes 177, 178, get across them, all the way through to presidents of the brand new United States of America like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and interestingly, not George Washington. But again, we'll get to that. Um, a member of the half our history Old Guard got in touch to suggest, the to-, uh, to suggest this topic. The man, the myth, the legend, he's been listening since early 2019 at least. He's been around for years. It's always a pleasure to hear from him. It is, of course, Belgian Bart, everyone. Bart van Heuleven. I actually did some research this time and tried to learn how to pronounce his name properly. Can't wait to hear how I did. Definitely did better than how I used to butcher it. Bart van Galuva. Um, Sorry about that. But old mate, it is fantastic to have you along, along with uh, all the old listeners who have stuck with me over the years. Anyway, Bart wanted to hear about powdered wigs and the history thereof. So today we're going to get into it. We're going to start with the question, where did these powdered wigs of the late 18th century even come from? Because, of course, humans have been wearing wigs for thousands of years. Uh, wigs played a role in ancient cultures thousands of years ago. The Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, they're wearing wigs as well as in uh, classical civilizations, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, and this has continued all the way through to this very day. Humans still wear wigs in the 21st century. A lot of the time you don't even know um, because today they look more natural than ever. But it was during this period, the 18th century, that wigs became not only an, a, an essential fashion accessory for the well-to-do gentlemen, but were also worn very obviously as wigs, not as a stealthy replacement for natural-looking hair. And... The origins of this fashion trend are very interesting indeed. Origins plural because there are there are actually quite a number of different factors that came together to make the wig the iconic fashion accessory that it ultimately became. But we'll get into the most basic and simple explanation for the popularity of wigs um, because it is, well, yes, as I say, extremely simple, something that I don't think will surprise you at all. Wigs became popular around this time as blokes got very stuck into the idea of covering up the fact that they were balding. Now, I can relate to this. I'm balding. I hate it. I recently shaved my head right down, almost down to the skin, um, to, to see if it would look any better. It did not. So now I'm growing it back out and I think I'll just have to learn to live with a little tonsier at the back. Not thrilled about this, but I don't have the, I don't have the luxury of popping on a powdered wig like I would have, uh, you know, two and a half centuries ago. Um, but, I, you know, I guess I could. I could do what members of the French royal family started to do in the 17th and 18th centuries and start wearing wigs. Um, it won't surprise you to learn further that, you know, this need to cover up or this, or this desire, I should say, rather than a need, this desire to cover up a, a, uh, an unfashionably balding head was popularised by, like so many other fashion trends, uh, it was popularised by, by royalty. King Louis XIII of France, he started going bald at a young age, and so he began to have great big flowing wigs, shoulder-length wigs made to hide his baldness. 
And this trend was continued by his son, Louis XIV, the, uh, the Sun King, longest reigning uh, sovereign monarch in history, episode 280, get across it. Um, of course, I should mention as well, years before these two were wearing wigs, if we're going to talk about kings and queens in wigs, Queen Elizabeth I of England, she was wearing wigs, although that's not really what brought them into prominence 100 years later. No, it was Louis XIV, more than anyone else, um, who had to start wearing, well, chose to start wearing them in the 1650s as a teenager, the poor bloke. He started balding when he was 17 years old. Uh, but with this, uh, with the king now wearing wigs, all the, all the other high-ranking French aristocrats, they're scrambling to get on board with wigs of their own. And before long, they had caught on, wigs had caught on as the bleeding edge of upper-class fashion as everyone tried to fall in line with what the king thought was cool. Now, this fashion was brought across the English Channel in, uh, in 1660. It was brought from France to England when Charles II was restored to the English throne. He'd been, uh, he'd been in exile in France. He had dressed the part while he was over there, and he imported the latest in French fashion back to his own kingdom. And this also helped to catalyse the growth of, of the wig throughout the stately courts of, uh, of European royalty. However... At this time in history, in the 17th century, these wigs, they are the long ones, big, long, flowing ones you see in, in like, very old paintings, um, uh, down past the shoulders, often not white, actually often uh, in more natural hair colours, although they did end up being powdered white a bit later on. Um, but uh, these these long, flowing wigs, right, they, they, they fell out of fashion reasonably swiftly, and uh, there are very good reasons for this. They were hot, they were heavy, they were uncomfortable to wear, and also they were extremely expensive to make. The best ones were made of human hair, uh, which was not cheap, uh, although <laughs> there, was, uh, there were some stories I read of opportunistic wig makers looking to uh, cut their costs by sourcing hair from plague victims. It's, I guess, not like they needed it, but I can't imagine going around wearing the, the, the hair of, 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 a, of a dead plague victim was very good for your health. Anyway, that was one thing that wigs were made from, uh, very commonly human hair towards the, towards the top end of town. But you could get cheaper wigs. Cheaper wigs were made with animal hair, usually horse or, or goat hair. Even so, these were still pricey. Um, so pricey, in fact, that only really to begin with the wealthy had access to them. And interestingly, this is where the term bigwig comes from. Uh, obviously, the larger the wig, the more expensive it was. And the more expensive it was, the richer and more powerful you had to be to purchase it. And therefore, we have this association of a bigwig being someone who is, you know, very powerful, often rich as well. I guess it's not super, the saying really isn't so much about money as it is about power. But still, a bigwig, uh, that, that comes from the fact that wigs were just, yep, super duper expensive. Anyway, as we begin to move now into the 18th century... Wigs, they're catching on in a major way. And uh, here's where I want to talk about some other factors as well that, uh, that, that really helped the wig rise to prominence. It wasn't just because of royal fashion, although that certainly was a major factor. But in the 17th and the 18th centuries, right, there was a disease that was doing very, very well for itself. And it wasn't the plague. It was syphilis. Syphilis was ravaging the population of Europe around this time. And we're, of course, a long way away from antibiotics back then. If you were chock full of syphilis, uh, as so many people were back then, you could expect to go through a wide and very exciting range of different symptoms, one of which was, of course, hair loss, patchy hair loss. But it wasn't just hair loss. Thrown in it at, at no extra cost to you would also be open sores on your scalp. Now, quite aside from the whole hair loss thing, open sores, not really the sort of thing that you want to parade as you're walking about town. Um, and so wealthy sufferers of syphilis would would cover these symptoms up uh, with a with an oh so fashionable wig. But 
we can move away from vanity now, from the fact that, you know, kings are going bald and wearing wigs and, and people, uh, root rats around uh, around Europe uh, uh, have got weeping sores on, on their scalps that they want to hide. And we can talk more now about a, a practical application that these wigs had. One that I found very interesting. It wasn't just syphilis that was doing very well for itself uh, back in those days. There was a, there was another, I guess, medical issue that uh, that also was flourishing, and that was head lice. Head lice was a, a problem faced by thousands and thousands of people back there. These infestations were very common, very difficult to get rid of. The easiest way to get rid of an infestation of head lice was to just shave your head, right? But if you did that, then you didn't have the long flowing locks that were, you know, very much in, in, in vogue back then as well. So what did you do? You plopped a wig on your head to cover up the fact that you'd shaved your head to get rid of the nits. And on top of this, right, because interestingly, wigs also end up with a lot of the time with uh, head lice infestations, just as natural hair can. Um, getting rid of nits in a wig much, much easier. So much easier because wigs that would get infested with head lice, right? You just take them back to your wig maker and the wig maker would get rid of the nits by just boiling them to death. You would ch- you would chuck your wig into a pot of boiling water and you would boil it until all the head lice just died, treat it with fuller's earth and whatever else to make sure they're, they're not going to stick around. But it was so much easier to get rid of a head lice infestation from a wig than it was from, of course, your natural hair and, and, and your scalp. And so- Wig makers offering this extra service, not just making the wigs, but also de-licing them, right? Get them nice and fresh. This is fantastic for wig wearers everywhere. You're back in business, lice-free, and you're looking a million bucks with your fancy wig that's been, uh, you know, freshly cleaned. So that's the that's the why of the powdered wig. These are the reasons that men wore these wigs in the first place, because they were going bald, or they were full of syphilis, or they were full of head lice, or perhaps... You know, they went for the trifecta, and and all three of these, uh, all three of these reasons apply to them. Whatever the case, wearing wigs a very straightforward sol- uh, solution to all of these problems. Um, and so, as a result of uh, as a result of this, a fashion movement was born, and it caught on in a major way. But let's move on now from the why and talk about the actual what. Let's talk about what these wigs were, what they looked like, and uh, and some of the ways they changed over the years into the eighteenth century. Wigs um, ended up not just being worn by aristocrats, right? Those of, of the wealthy merchant class started to wear them, as well as uh, as well as military officers. Any anyone who had a little bit of money to to spare to throw around to show off the fact that they were, uh, you know, uh, a bit more prosperous than the than the common folk. Uh, this, this is just another example of, of of conspicuous consumption, right? People flaunting their wealth and, and showing that they're of a, of a higher social strata. However, um. Perhaps due to the uncomfortable and impractical nature of the, of the huge bushy wigs worn by the likes of Louis XIV, in time as the years passed, wigs became smaller and smaller, leading to this classic powdered wig look of the late 18th century. The fringe pushed up, rolled curls on either side of the face, and then a little pigtail plaited at the back called a queue. And this was the de rigueur hairstyle for Western men in the back half of the 18th century, uh, whether you were wearing a wig or not, right? Wigs actually briefly fell out of fashion in the 1750s and 1760s. Men still styled their hair like this, however. And it's interesting to think about fashion trends back then sort of uh, waning and and, and waxing, right? Um, Because they fell out of fashion in the 1750s and 1760s but then by the 1770s wigs were back baby just like those just like those ridiculous jinko jeans that all the zoomers are wearing these days I, i'll tell you this i'm still in my 2012 era skinny jeans i'm going to be buried in those things i i can't believe that wearing skinny jeans now these days it used to be so cool but now it just makes you look old 
But anyway, this is what happened. Zoomers in the 1770s, right? We, they brought wigs back. And for some reason, I wasn't actually able to find out why, but for some reason, the fashionable, the fashionable thing to do with these wigs was colour them white, the, and, and quite a bright white as well. Um, older wigs used more natural hair colours, but if you really wanted to be a, a fashionable go-hard, you would have your, your wig be as, as light-coloured as possible, as white as possible, and you, and you would powder it, right, to make it even whiter. Wigs would be powdered with starch, and then, I love this, I think this is fantastic, they would also then be scented, usually, right, with, uh, with orange or lavender. I'm so into that, honestly. I'd love to powder what, what little hair I have left. I'd love to powder it so I, I, it was orange-scented. I, I'd, I'd really get around that. Anyway, um, speaking of powdering your hair, uh, I want to talk about what women did with their hair at this time as well, because they weren't wearing wigs, generally speaking. They weren't wearing wigs in the same way that men were. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, an, an absolutely necessary fashion accessory for, uh, for women in the same way that it was for men. But all the same, right, women powdered their hair just, just in the same way that men did, almost. Um, but uh, if you go online and you look up some of the ridiculously elaborate hairstyles of, uh, of late 18th century women, the best example is probably Marie Antoinette. Um, rather than just their natural hair, these these hairdos also uh, involve what were essentially just hair extensions. I don't really know how to how else to describe them. Hair pieces, I guess. Women would add artificial hair pieces into their natural hair and get these great big coiffures going way up in the stratosphere. And then, just like the men, they would powder their hair as well. Although usually women would powder their hair a light grey or even a bluish kind of grey rather than the uh, the bright white that was favoured uh, by by men and their, and their smaller wigs. Anyway, the uh, the bright white wig of the 1770s and the 1780s, it is, I think, one the one that really caught on when it comes to our common historical conception, right? As I say, um, it's the wig that springs to mind when we think of famous figures from that era, Mozart, Jefferson, but not Washington, as I mentioned before. I'll explain that, actually. I'll, I'll get into that here. Washington didn't wear wigs. It may look like he did in his portraits, but he didn't. He actually wore his natural hair in the same style as those classic late 18th century wigs. Um, and he also powdered his hair white. He, obviously, you can see every every single portrait of George Washington has him with white hair because he either powdered it in his younger years or just got old enough that it lost its colour. So he did have powdered white hair, but it was all natural, all 100% natural, growing straight out of his skull, unlike, of course, his teeth, which were not natural. Um, by the time by the time he was inaugurated as the first president of the United States, uh, Washington only had one natural tooth left in his head. The rest of them, uh, he, wore de- he wore dentures that were made of uh, either ivory or gold, or rather darkly, um, teeth that had been removed from slaves, which is not a nice thing to think about. Anyway, um, talking about U.S. presidents like uh, Washington and Jefferson, this actually brings us uh, very neatly to not only the end of the 18th century, but also to the end of the powdered wig. Because even someone like Jefferson, right, he didn't like powdered wigs very much. He wore them here and there when he had to uh, before he became president. But after his inauguration in 1801, he left them behind for good, He, he as uh, as did more or less everyone else, I might add, because here's the thing. They weren't that fashionable anymore. Like me and my skinny jeans, by 1800, um, wigs were wigs were a mark of the old person, someone who was outdated and outmoded. And it goes even deeper than that, right? Because not only were you being deeply unfashionable if you if you plopped a, a wig on your noggin from the year 1800 onwards, right? The fall of the powdered wig wasn't just about fashion; it was also social, economic, and political. 
Socially speaking, the Age of Enlightenment had arrived by the time we start to push into the 19th century, even beforehand, really. Um, And so conspicuous displays of class-based difference, these were increasingly frowned upon as more and more egalitarian ideals uh, began to catch on. Extravagant spending on fashion became less and less socially acceptable. And in some places, actually just dangerous, as we'll talk about in a second. Um, Secondly, economically, right? In uh, in 1795 in Britain, the wig industry was essentially just deep-sixed forever when the British Parliament imposed a hefty tax specifically on wig powder. It was a very expensive tax. No one wanted to pay it. And so people just stopped wearing wigs. And that was that for wigs in Britain. But the third reason, and, and perhaps the most important one, was a political reason and a result of, like most major historical developments in the last couple of centuries in, in the Western world, It was a result of the French Revolution. I just mentioned how, again, conspicuous extravagant spending on things like wigs, conspicuous consumption was, it could potentially be very dangerous for your health. In 1790s France, nowhere was this more true because if you were going about in a fancy wig when the revolution was in full swing, that was a very good way to have the wig removed along with your head by a guillotine. Wigs were a symbol of the wealthy upper classes, something you did not want to broadcast you were a part of back in revolutionary France. And as I mentioned, as these more egalitarian ideals caught on throughout Europe and across the other side of the Atlantic in the USA, wigs, as essentially a status symbol, a class symbol, they very quickly fell out of fashion. And very helpfully, they fell out of fashion more or less bang on the year 1800. Which means that if you see a portrait of someone in a powdered wig, odds are they were cutting about in the late 18th century and not into the 19th. It's a very easy way to date the the look of someone, right? Because if they're in a powdered wig, broadly speaking, most of the time they are from the 18th century and not the 19th century. Because it was almost exactly at the turn of the century that powdered wigs really started to fall off the face of the earth. Unless, of course... You know, you're looking at a portrait of someone who really dedicated themselves to the look and didn't mind being ridiculed as the 19th century equivalent of a boomer. Anyway, today, these old style 18th century wigs, uh, they're still used in some parts of the world, broadly speaking, just for ceremonial applications, most famously, of course, in the uh, in the legal profession. In Britain and in a few other Commonwealth nations, uh, judges and barristers in courts of law still wear wigs. Um, a lot of Australian courts have moved on from ceremonial wigs, but others still use them in different states, um, mainly the higher level courts, the Supreme Courts in some states. But again, not all of them. For instance, from what I could find out, um, you don't wear a wig in any courtroom in WA at all. Not even the WA Supreme Court. They've completely abolished wigs over on the west side of the country. Uh, and the same goes in in countries like Aotearoa, New Zealand, and in Canada. It's not very often that you'll see people in wigs uh, in their courtrooms either. But they still go absolutely mental for a wig in Britain. Uh, you should see them go. The, the British High Court judges, they love to get all tizzed up in their wigs and their robes. They, uh, they honestly, they look like someone very badly explained to them um, what Santa Claus is supposed to look like. But all the same, these men and women, of the of the British High Court, the British Supreme Court, they do carry the proud tradition of wearing these wigs into the 21st century. And perhaps this goes some way in explaining why the British justices of the Supreme Court earn almost a quarter of a million pounds a year. Because after all, they've got to come up with the money for the wig powder tax somehow, don't they? And with inflation being what it is these days, whew, 